Chapter 2 of The Indian Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg Markwood. The Indian Today by Charles Alexander Eastman. Chapter 2 The How and the Why of the Indian Wars. I have tried to set forth the character and motives of the primitive Indian as they were affected by contact with civilization. In a word, demoralization was gradual but certain culminating in the final loss of his freedom and confinement to the reservation under most depressing conditions. It must be borne in mind that there have been scarcely any genuine wildlife among us for the past 35 years. Sitting Bull's Band of Sioux were the last real hostiles of their tribe to surrender in 1880, and Geronimo's Apaches followed in 1886. It is important to understand the underlying cause of Indian Wars. There are people today who believe that the Indian likes nothing better than going on the warpath killing and scalping from sheer native cruelty and lust for blood. His character as a man of peace has not been appreciated, yet it is matter of history that the newcomers were welcomed in almost every case with unsuspecting kindness, and in his dealings with the white man, the original owner of the soil has been uniformly patient and reasonable, offering resistance only under irresistible provocation. There have been a few noteworthy Indian wars in the history of America. In 1629, Powhatan's brother revolted against the colonists in Virginia, and King Philip took up arms in Massachusetts in 1675. The Cherokee War of 1758 in North and South Carolina came next, then the Conspiracy of Pontiac in 1763, the Creek War from 1812 to 1830, and the Seminole War from 1820 to 1833. These wars in the South were incited by the insolence and aggressiveness of the Americans. The struggles of the Algonquians and the Iroquois, however, were not conducted wholly on their own initiative. These tribes were used as allies in the long drawn out conflicts between the French and the English, and thus initiated into the motives and the methods of the white man's warfare. I doubt very much if Pontiac would have carried his policies so far had it not been for the encouragement he received from French traders and settlers, who assured him that King Louis would come to his assistance in due time with men and ammunition. Strong in this belief, as well as in his innate sense of right and justice, he planned to unite the scattered tribes against the invader and overthrow all the border forts in a day. His boldness and aggressiveness were unique in the history of Indian warfare. At this juncture, a remarkable man was chosen to guide the Indian policy in America. Sir William Johnson had long been engaged in trade among the Six Nations, and more especially the Mohawks. His influence among them was very great, and it was partly through his conciliatory methods and partly by reason of the betrayal of his plans and the failure of the French to keep their promises of assistance that Pontiac, perhaps our greatest military genius, was forced to surrender. A sad feature of the early wars was the suffering of those Indians who had listened to the preachings of Jesus Christ. In Massachusetts, during King Philip's War, the Christian Indians were treated no better than heathen savages. Some were hanged, some imprisoned, and some sold as slaves to the West Indies. At best, they lost their homes and improvements, and nearly perished of cold and hunger. In Pennsylvania, at Conestoga and Wyoming Valley, they were horribly murdered, and the peaceful Moravian Indians were butchered at prayer in their church, while no one dared say a word of protest except the Quakers. To return to the wars of the South, many of these were mere feuds between one or two families. The Cherokee secured concessions and promises of better treatment from the white men, after which they continued friendly and helped overcome 
the Creeks, and Seminoles. Practically all Indian wars have been caused by a few self-seeking men. For instance, a man may secure through political influence a license to trade among the Indians. By unprincipled practices, often in defiance of treaty agreements, such as gross overcharging and the use of liquor to debauch the natives, he accumulates much tainted wealth. This he invests in lands on the border or even within Indian territory if ill-defined. Having established himself, he buys much stock or perhaps sets up a mill on Indian water power. He gathers his family and hirelings about him and presently becomes a man of influence in his home estate. From the vantage point of a rough border town, people largely with gamblers, saloon keepers, and horse thieves, this man and his kind plot the removal of the Indian from his fertile acres. They harass him in every way, and having at last forced resistance upon him, they loudly cry, Indian outbreak, send us troops, annihilate the savages. Osceola and the Seminoles The principal causes of Indian troubles in the South were first, the encroachments of this class of settlers, second, the hospitable willingness of the Indians to shelter fugitive slaves. Many of these people had found an Elysium among the Creeks and Seminoles, and had even intermarried among them, their offspring becoming members of the tribe. Osceola's wife was of this class, a beautiful Indian woman with some Negro and some white blood. She was dragged away from him by unholy traffickers in human flesh, and he was arrested for remonstrating. Who could tolerate such an outrage? The great chief was then a young man and comparatively unknown, but within one year he became the recognized leader of his tribe and the champion of their cause. The country was perfectly suited to guerrilla warfare, which is characteristic of Indians, a country in which even an Indian of another tribe would be lost. White frontiersmen were imported to guide the army, but according to the testimony of Beckworth, the Rocky Mountain hunter and trapper, all gave up in disgust. The government was forced to resort to pacific measures in order to get the Seminoles in its power, and eventually most of them were removed to the Indian Territory. There was one small band which persistently refused the offered terms, and still remains in the fastness of the Florida Everglades, perhaps the only unconquered band in the United States today. While the southern tribes were deported almost in a body to what was the far west, the wars of the Algonquians among the Great Lakes and the Ohio River scattered them far and wide in fragments. Such of the Iroquois as had strong treaties with the Dutch colonies secured permanent reservations in the state of New York, which they still occupied, having been continuously under state control instead of that of general government. Chief Joseph's Reasoning The Black Hawk War in 1836 was the end of the Algonquian resistance. Surely, if there was ever just cause for resistance, Black Hawk had such cause. His case was exactly similar to that of the famous Nez Perce, Chief Joseph, who illustrates his grievance very lucidly in a North American Review for April 1897 in an interview with Bishop Hare of South Dakota. If I ever sold any land to the government, says he, it was done in this way. Suppose a man comes to me and says, Joseph, I want to buy your horse. I say to him, I am satisfied with my horse. I do not wish to sell him at any price. Then the man goes to my neighbor and says to him, I want to buy Joseph's horse, but he will not sell it to me. My neighbor says, if you will buy my horse, I will throw in his horse. The man buys my neighbor's horse, and then he comes and claims my horse and takes it away. I am under no obligation to my neighbor. He had nothing to do with my horse. It was just such dealing as this which forced Blackhawk to fight with a handful of warriors for his inheritance. The government simply made a treaty with the Sox under Keokuk and took the land of the Foxes at the same time. 
there were some chiefs who after they had feasted well and drunk deep and signed away their country for nothing talked of war and urged black hawk to lead them then they sneaked away to play good indian and left him to bear the brunt alone there were no more indian wars for thirty years the southwest frontiers were now occupied by eastern tribes or the remnants which had been transported beyond the mississippi during the early thirties only fragments were left here and there in new york pennsylvania ohio indiana and the south the great suing raids occupied nearly all the upper valley of the mississippi and missouri rivers and their tributaries north of them dealt the Ojibways, an algonquian tribe with an entirely different language the sioux nation proper originally occupied a vast territory and in the middle of the nineteenth century they still held the southern half of minnesota a portion of wisconsin and iowa all the dakotas part of montana and nearly half of nebraska and smaller portions of colorado and wyoming some of the bands were forest indians hunters and trappers and fishermen while others roamed over the great plains and hunted the buffalo elk and antelope some divided the year between the forest and prairie life these people had been at peace with the whites ever since the early french explorers and the jesuit priests had entered their country they had traded for many years with the hudson bay and american fur companies and no serious difficulty had arisen nor was any obstruction offered to the progress of civilization in 1824, the United States required of the tribes in this region to define their territory, a demand which intensified and gave a new turn to their intertribal warfare. The use of guns, horse, and whiskey completed the demoralization, and thus the truly savage warfare had its origin, ever increasing in bitterness until it culminated in resistance to the government in 1862, 100 years after the struggle and defeat of the great Pontiac. The Sioux and Their Grievances a treaty was made in 1851 with the Minnesota Sioux, to which one band was not a party. This was the one commonly known as Inkpaduta's Band, whose usual winter resort was in northwestern Iowa. White settlers went upon the ceded lands, and when this band returned to Spirit Lake after their summer's roving, they found it occupied. Owing to a very severe winter and the presence of the settlements, the surrounding country became depleted of game, and the Sioux, who were starving, saw aid among the settlers no doubt they became a nuisance and were so treated which treatment they very naturally resented and thus arose the spirit lake massacre the rest of the tribe condemned the act and sue from the redwood reservations pursued the guilty band until they overtook and killed two of Inkpaduta's sons the others were driven back among the wild sioux this was their first offense after more than a century of contact with the whites little crow's band formed the east wing of the sioux nation and were the first to enter reservation life the causes of their outbreak a few years later were practically the same as in many other instances for in its broad features the history of one indian tribe is the history of all their hunting grounds were taken from them and their promised support was not forthcoming some of the chiefs began to play politics like white men and through their signatures secretly given a payment of ninety eight thousand dollars due the tribe was made to the indian traders Little Crow himself was involved in this steal, and was made head chief by the whites, who wished to have someone in this position whom they could deal with. But soon the non-payment of annuities brought the Indians to the verge of starvation, and in despair they forced Little Crow to lead them in revolt. In August 1862, they massacred the agency employees and extended their attack to the white settlers, killing many and destroying a large amount of property before a part of the tribe fled into Canada and the rest surrendered to General Sibley. Next came the struggle of the Western Sioux and the Northern Cheyennes in defense of their home. The building of the Northern Pacific and the Union Pacific Transcontinental Railroads 
and necessitated the making of new treaties with these people. Scarcely was the agreement completed by which they ceded a right of way in return for assurances of permanent and absolute possession of their territory, including the Black Hills and the Bighorn Mountains, when gold was discovered in these regions. This fact created great excitement and a general determination to dispossess the suit of the country just guaranteed to them, which no white man was to enter without the consent of three-fourths of the adult men of the tribe. Public excitement was intense, and the government found itself unable to clear the country of intruders and to protect the rights of the Sioux. It was reported that there were no less than 15,000 men in the Black Hills District placer mining and prospecting for the yellow metal. The authority of the United States was defied almost openly by the frontier press and people. Then the Indian took matters into their own hands, carried on a guerrilla warfare against the immigrants, and harassed the forts until the army was forced to enter upon a campaign against them. In 1868, another treaty was made, but the great chief Red Cloud would not sign it until he saw forts C.F. Smith and Phil Carney abandoned. Here is probably the only instance in American history in which a single Indian chief was able to enforce his demands and make a great government back down. At that time, it would have cost immense sums of money and many lives to conquer him, and would have retarded the development of the West for many years. It is a fact that Sitting Bull was thoroughly opposed to yielding any more territory. No doubt he foresaw the inevitable result. He had taken up the cause of the Eastern Sioux in Minnesota and fought civilly and solely in 1862. He had supported Red Cloud in his protests against the establishment of the Bozeman Trail and against the new forts, although thus far these aggressions had not affected him directly. But when surveyors began work on the Northern Pacific, they entered his particular domain and it was time for him to fight in its defense. Unfortunately for him, the other bands of Sioux whom he had helped in their time of need were now all settled upon reservations, so that he had not much support except from Crazy Horse's band and the so-called hostiles or renegades of the Western bands. Hostilities began in 1872, culminating in 1876 with the famous Custer fight, which practically ended the struggle, for after annihilating Custer's command, the Indians fled into British America. Four years later, Sitting Bull was induced to come in and settle down upon the Sioux reservations. The Modoc War in Oregon and Idaho, in which the Shoshone and the Bannocks were involved, was really a part of this same movement, namely the last defense of their hunting grounds by the Plains Indians, as was also the resistance of the Cheyennes and the Comanche farther south, and of the Utes in 1877, simultaneously with the last stand of the Sioux. It had been found impossible to conquer the Plains Indians without destroying the buffalo, their main substance. Therefore, vast herds were ruthlessly destroyed by the United States Army, and in 1880, they were practically extinct. Since it was found cheaper to feed them than to fight them, the one-time warriors were corralled upon the reservations and kept alive upon government rations. The Ghost Dance War All Indian warfare worthy of the name had now come to an end. There were left Geronimo's small bands of Apaches, who were hunted down in all but inaccessible country and finally captured and confined in southern forts. More recent Indian outbreaks, so-called, are usually a mere ruse of the politicians, or are riots caused by the disaffected of a few Indians unjustly treated by their government agents. The only really serious disturbance within a generation was the Ghost Dance War of 1890-91. And yet this cannot fairly be called an Indian war. It arose in a religious craze which need not have been a serious matter if wisely handled. The people were hungry and disheartened, their future looked hopeless, and all of their appeals were disregarded. At this juncture, the suggestion of a messiah, offering hope of miraculous intervention in behalf of the red man, appealed to many, and the new religion spread far and fast. 
In some tribes it soon died a natural death, but in the Sioux country it was unwisely forbidden by the authorities and led to grave results. At Pine Ridge, in December of 1890, the ghost dancers had come into the agency and the situation was apparently under control when the attempted arrest of Sitting Bull in his cabin by Indian police led to his death and the stampeding of his people. Several of the stampeded bands came down to Pine Ridge, where they were met by United States troops, disarmed and shot down after one man had resisted disarmament by firing off his weapon. This was a massacre of Wounded Knee, where about 300 Indians, two-thirds of them women and children, were mowed down with a machine gun within a few minutes. For some days there was danger of reprisal, but the crisis passed, and those Indians who had fled to the Badlands were induced to come in and surrender. From that time on, the Indian tribes of the United States have been on a peace footing. End of chapter 2 Recording by Meg Markworth